0: Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. This podcast was recorded on September 20th, 2017 at 10am GMT. As always, if you want to find out anything about our upcoming podcasts or anything else we do here at the Centre, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash terc. There you can find out information about our MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, our Terrorism and Extremism book series with IB Taurus, and so much more. Also, for the most up-to-date information, be sure to follow us on Twitter, at T-E-R-C-U-E-L, and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. Okay, time for today's guest. Dr. Paul Gill is a Senior Lecturer in Security and Crime Science at the University College London. Previous to joining UCL, Paul was a postdoctoral research fellow at the International Centre for the Study of Terrorism at Pennsylvania State University. He has published extensively on the topic of terrorist behaviour and has conducted research funded by the Office for Naval Research, the Department of Homeland Security, DSTL, the European Union, the National Institute of Justice, Crest and Minerva and is about to embark on a research project funded by the European Research Council. These projects fo- have focused upon various aspects of terrorist behavior, including the, IED, the development of IDs, creativity, terrorist network structures, and lone actor terrorism. His doctoral research focused on the underlying individual and organizational motivations behind suicide bombing. And this piece of research won the Jean Blumdel Prize for the Best PhD Thesis in Political Science in Europe for 2010. He is published in leading psychology, criminology, and political science journals. Paul, thanks for being here. Thanks for the invite, John. No worries. So, as I do with all of our guests, I start off by asking, how did you get involved in this area of research?
1: I'd love to tell you that there was a big grand plan at the start, but I sort of just fell between different places. I think, you know, obviously I'm Irish, so I think a lot of people from Ireland Generation sort of grew up with the Troubles as a sort of soundtrack to their early youth, you know. Mm-hmm. like You'd wake up every morning and then hear news about another shooting or bombing or whatever. So it was always a sort of a fascination with what was going on up there. But it was never really spoken about in the house. My father is from northwest of Ireland, so close to the border, but from the Republic. Um, he'd never really talk about it. And we used to go up on holidays up there, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s you'd have to pass through the border and you'd see these kind of young British soldiers who were absolutely terrified out of their minds and sort of pointing rifles at various different cars and you know uh, but it was never sort of spoken about in the car what was this about so I always had a sort of fascination with Northern Ireland and seeing what was going on and um, I ended up doing my um, social science degree at University College Dublin there was a lot of um, classes and courses related to Northern Ireland related to sort of identity formation and and things like that so it wasn't really about the kind of violence or the behavior but it was about the sort of more sociological ends of stuff which i always found interesting then when it came to sort of phd time um <clears throat> i think i kind of wanted to do something in northern ireland that's kind of where a lot of my passion for research lay but after various different discussions with supervisors and kind of thinking about career And the idea was let's do something on the Middle East. Um, At that time, sort of Hamas was in in, in a major sort of spike in suicide bombing attacks and so on, whereas Northern Ireland wasn't really in the news. So some of the supervisors were kind of saying, well, listen, if you want to work outside of Ireland, if you want to go to the States and, and so on, you might want to be kind of focusing on areas that those types of programs are recruiting people on. So kind of I ended up, <clears throat> working on it's largely sort of Palestinian and Lebanese case studies in, in the uh, PhD, and um, that's kind of where it started. But I always wanted to go back and do Northern Ireland stuff. Um, towards the end of the PhD, I had this little tiny little paper that basically published um, like the sort of theoretical framework of the PhD, and Horgan somehow it ended up in Horgan's inbox. Um, I hadn't met him at that point and he read it and got in touch saying listen, do you have anything else? And I said, well, I'm just finishing a PhD and he had just started the center at Penn State that we were both very lucky to work in and uh, He sort of offered me a postdoc more or less off the back of that really simple basic kind of paper <clears throat> And then when we started there, we had a project on the provisional IRA and on bomb making so we eventually got around back so i had to travel to america to actually do the irish case study that i was advised against doing in ireland more or less so um we ended up doing that and it was on bomb making and and um, lots of sort of criminological angles to it so i started <clears throat> dealing with more much more sort of situational crime prevention type literature uh, crime prevention uh, kind of applied security studies which i hadn't done at all in my phd and then that's how i kind of ended up where i am at ucl which is sort of crime science which is you know interdisciplinary approaches to crime prevention mm-hmm. so i'd love to tell you it was i mean the things that i planned didn't work out mm-hmm. they the th- but the things i wanted to happen did but only by ch- pure fluke yeah, and chance and being in the right place at the right time and this is this is a theme that's coming out
0: from all of these interviews is that that an element of luck uh has played a, a part in a lot of people's uh, yeah. career like you by having someone like John Horgan approach you, it took your career in this tra- trajectory. Your career might've gone in a different trajectory otherwise um, by the chance that he, that he got that, got hold of that article. Um, and had you been aware of his work beforehand?
1: Yeah, so I mean, he, he was probably the first one that was kind of terrorism specific that I read. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of studies on like civil war, national security strategy, foreign policy, when I was doing my degree, masters. Mm-hmm. Um, But during my masters, at some point, I just happened to sort of come across the book on Amazon or something. So that was the first one that was specifically applied to terrorism. And that was the psychology. That was the psychology of terrorism. The Mm -hmm. book I think it was more or less just published. Like it would have been in around that time. I think it's published in two thousand five, and I think yeah, I was doing my masters then. So it was a fairly new book, and you know, it it was a brilliant introduction to what had been already carried out, Mm -hmm. and I think it throws up more questions than answers, and it helped provide a kind of guide of where we need to go to next. Like, I think it it, I think it inspired a lot of sort of that very junior career researchers to go out and, and, and hunt this down. That yeah. it wasn't just a, a sense of, oh, all of this previous research is rubbish, but it also, which you get a lot of that, yeah. it also sort of provided a framework and a way of thinking that helped guide people about, well, what do we do next? Yeah. So I often kind of get frustrated within that kind of, terrorism studies and at conferences when people are just only criticizing but without taking into account you know why there are problems so you see these kind of PhD students say all the data is rubbish there's lots of barriers to getting really really good data and it takes Mm. like a lot of effort and time to get it it's not as if it just sort of magically appears you know Mm. so you often you need to sort of provide a framework and a guidance for well okay here's the problems here's why they're structurally are there mm-hmm. and here's the kind of next steps we need to do to sort of try and overcome those mm-hmm. and that book i return to it every you know year or two mm-hmm. and find mm-hmm. new things in it that i didn't pick up on bef- previously mm-hmm. or like you know just aspects to it that maybe i misinterpreted the first time i read and and that stayed with me those misinterpretations stayed with me and then return to it two years later and you're like, oh, he was actually saying something completely different. Mm. That's not because of the clarity of the text. That's purely, as I'm sort of grown as a researcher and, and knowledge in this field, mm. I'm starting to catch up with where Hawking was 12 years ago. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's sort of a found, like, it's, it's the go-to. It's the book that I consistently return to and it's probably the only one that I do. I think it's the second edition is a better book Boy, just there's something about that first one that just was a major, major inspiration. Yeah, uh, and, from the start. And you can
0: see it's still in your work today. Um, I, I'm thinking of a piece that we're not going to be discussing in depth here. We discussed with your, um, with your former PhD student and colleague, uh, Dr. Emily Corner, uh, your recent piece together, there and back again. You can really see the influence of of John's book on on a yeah. piece like that, <clears throat> and and other pieces relating to the psychology of terrorism that you've had.
1: Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, and then sort of going to go, when we went to work for him, I was there for nearly three years Mm. and it was sort of just like having the book at the top of the corridor, you know? I I would think I'd stumble into something completely new and you'd go up and say it to him and he was like, no, no, no. The seed of that idea came from my book originally. You've just forgotten that you've read it there, you know? So it's like hugely, hugely influential. You sort of constantly need to go back and check that was this an original idea of mine or did it sort of yeah yeah Hands and that, in the back of my head at some point
0: and we, we've heard similar things about people referring to writings by mark de crenshaw and others like that as you think you've got an original idea and then you go back to those writings and oh yeah that idea has been come up with already and and yeah and you're right when we see our generation of researchers in terrorism studies and maybe this is a as I've said in other podcasts, maybe this is a selection bias in who I've picked for the, this podcast. But oh, without shower, yeah, yeah, completely. <laughs> um, but we've seen a lot of people saying uh, that John's work has influenced yeah. them as well. So, no, it's great. And, but you broadened out your, your research on the psychology of terrorism, obviously, uh, with John's, John's work. You're reading around it and one of the pieces that you've said um, that influenced you uh, as, alongside this was Jeff Viktorov's piece uh, the mind of the terrorist. What was it about this? That, what did you get from this? So again, it, it's, it's
1: like, I mean, a lot of the kind of key things he talks about in that paper largely agree with the Horgan piece. Mm-hmm. But I think where he goes into a little bit more detail in that piece compared to maybe the psychology of terrorism book was where he talks about the roles and how it's not really enough to sort of talk about the terrorist in this very kind of aggregate way. Mm-hmm that, you know, bomb makers might be really, really different than bomb planters. They might be really different than suicide bombers. Foreign Mm -hmm. fighters, you know, might be different and and so on. So it's that sort of idea that thinking about disaggregating and being really specific about who we're talking about was really, really key because the PhD was on suicide bombers, you know. Um, And I think sometimes you might see a study like Ariel Marari's study on suicide bombers. Where he finds specific psychological traits compared to a control group, but often you'll see a citation of Morari's work talk about terrorists in general, whereas that was a finding of a very specific cohort of individuals in a very specific context—an Israeli prison being being Palestinians. So it's that sort of push for specificity, which is also something that kind of Horgan very much you know pushes through in all of his work, like be specific about what you're talking about. And I think from there, some more nuance is is going to come out of it. So, like, I think, again, that helps me further when I'm doing my research today and the sort of crime science essentially applied kind of criminology. Some people might categorize it as. Whereas, like, in criminology 40 years ago, people talked about, you know, who became a criminal, They talked about, you know, root causes and they talked about, you know, psychological motivations. But it was only really, and and they talked about the lack of a profile. But it was only really then once they started disaggregating and saying, well, actually, arsonists are really, really different in terms of their psychological makeups than burglars. And have very different criminogenic needs and so on than rapists and, and and so on, so on, right? And it's that sort of move towards that more disaggregated specific approach that we need to sort of go towards and i think Victorov's paper was the first time that 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 i had seen it as a researcher where it was really specifically laid out mm. and that kind of helped because at the time you know once me and you started our postdocs we had these kind of brilliant teams of interns and um, collecting data yeah. and that was something that allowed us to do kind of that type of more specific empirical questioning you know so are you know in terms of demographics are bomb makers do they look different than bomb planters Mm -hmm. you know are they older are they you know less criminal history whatever um because obviously these different roles have very different behaviors underpinning them they've got very different needs very different sets of skill Mm -hmm. so the types of people that might be pushed into those roles or the types of people that might put their hand up to do certain roles are really really different and i thought I hadn't really seen that in the literature in a kind of very heavily empirical way. And that helped inform some of this stuff um, on lone actors, for example, where we're sort of comparing them to group actors. Mm -hmm. So Emily Corner, she probably talked about it on the previous issue, which finds like elevated levels of mental health problems in loans as opposed to groups. So we can start talking about this stuff in a more specific way. I think Mm -hmm. that's just where the literature needs to go. Because we've seen it in criminology, Terrorism studies just needs to kind of catch up. Yeah, And it's I suppose it's this
0: whole thing that for a lot of the history of terrorism studies, they've been treated as, oh, terrorists are so different to anything else we've seen, we have to reinvent the wheel. I'm sure the listeners are bored of me saying this at the moment, but there's so much we can draw from non-political violence research that we don't have to be uh, trying to come up with something new. There's a lot out there that you can see in crime sciences and elsewhere as well.
1: Yeah, exactly, and I think... There's a sort of a past dependency in the study of terrorism a lot, I think, where um, what happens very, very early on in the study kind of set researchers down a specific path, and it's very hard to sort of turn them back from that. And a lot of the early kind of studies of, like, terrorist groups and so on were heavily informed by historians and by sociologists, all really brilliant research. But, of course, because of their discipline, they're thinking about issues to do with identity and the kind of political aspects Mm -hmm. they're not really focusing upon individual behavior Mm -hmm. they're not looking at it through a criminal lens so i'm as a researcher i'm not really interested in the kind of ideology or the narratives and all that sort of stuff like it's not something that kind of feeds my brain i'm just not that i'm more interested in behavior you know what are they doing Mm -hmm. and help me sort of manipulate an environment to try and get them to do other things or disrupt what they are doing and so a lot of my stuff is kind of quite ideologically blind like i'm obviously studying jihadis and right wing but i think it has an applicability to other types of groups yeah and i suppose that's
0: that's one of the things that being terrorism researchers you can actually become blinkered and blinded by terrorism by the the fact that this is a politically motivated uh, form of violence and that can blink you to actually okay what is the behaviour here what is going on what feeds this behaviour not necessarily what
1: feeds this ideology what leads yeah. off to it I've found it hugely helpful just to think of it as a crime mm. like when we think about wife beaters mm. you know if, if you look at the sort of qualitative research on wife beaters like they have a grievance they have a narrative, they have a kind of justification for why they did it, right? Mm -hmm. We don't spend too much time, from a crime prevention perspective, we don't think about too much time about, you know, why did they do it? We try and set up interventions that make it less likely. Mm -hmm. So we work on their decision making, we, you know, try and get them off drugs or alcohol. Mm -hmm. We don't sort of sit down and go, listen, your wife actually is a really good cook. Mm Mm-hmm your grievance is illegitimate and that we counter their narratives we actually try and do these kind of environmental situational type interventions yeah but when there's a sort of a political religious social edge to people's violence that is grievance based we get all wrapped up in the in that kind of root causes and i don't know if that's going to be helpful from a prevention perspective but you know lots of researchers are not interested in prevention which is perfectly cool and perfectly Mm -hmm. fine it's just that's not really where my interests kind of lie.
0: I suppose linking up to, to John Horgan's work, this sort of is the differentiation that he puts when he talks about interviewing terrorists. He says sometimes it's much more useful to ask, how did you become involved, rather than why did you become involved? And yeah. it's that slight difference in the way you, you pose a question, whether it's face-to-face with someone you're interviewing or whether you're just posing it as this is my research questions the how rather than the why. And that can open up a huge huge amount more
1: yeah exactly and i mean and you know you opened this interview with a hell question Mm. um and i think i would always give that response because it's quite kind of fact-based if you said why did you become a terrorism researcher i think if i said 10 years ago my answer probably would have been well i just want to stay in a university environment (laughs) you know i just want to hang around (laughs) don't you know, want to get a I proper want job real world <laughs> yeah. you know i don't want to go back working in the insurance industry yeah. and if you ask me why now i could say well it's like I get to travel i get to do i get to sort of meet interesting podcast interviews <laughs> and i get to meet people like you and <laughs> why well, thank you um, you know like your your justifications for why change over time yeah. Yeah. and they are directly impacted by recent sort of experiences but the how is kind of a little bit more kind of tangible that mm. you can get closer to the ground truth yeah um so yeah yeah i know from my own interviews um,
0: with uh, and uh, with irish republicans uh, that if i ask the why i get the the ideological spiel then it could be the same for every different person that i'm interviewing but if i ask the how it's something yep. slightly different and yep. something very localized or very individualized as well and you get get much more um much more insight from that oftentimes and you were saying you were working in uh, in crime science in UCL. Um, you're working there alongside people like Emily Corner, Noemi Buhanna and others. Um, and the final piece that you have on isn't something about... Uh, that. that it, it's something that you can draw from crime sciences maybe a bit more? Or?
1: So the final piece is the Robert Fine piece. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, the kind of I think the question you posed to us was what was kind of heavily influential yeah. in your stuff. So. I started off with that interest in Northern Ireland, ended up doing stuff on the Middle East, and then by a fluke of history, I ended up doing the Northern Ireland stuff with Horgan. About 15 months into that postdoc, we were basically asked to put together a project proposal on what was popularly known as lone wolf terrorism. Um, And the sort of thinking in the room at the time was, there's no kind of real empirical understanding of lone actor behavior, mm-hmm. that maybe counterterrorism operators had a good sense of how what, how groups operate and how networks operate and sort of what are the tripwires to identify networks, but what do lone actors look like and how applicable are those tools and techniques to detecting, disrupting lone actors. So we ended up pitching this project, which was funded by the Department of Homeland Security, which was really a kind of career changer for me. Um, because of the amount of interest that that project later solicited because of this later rise in lone actors i mean we started it off thinking this is going to be a one-year project mm-hmm. in and out this is really only low impact stuff it's really only an american problem because of access to firearms and you know we'll get back to doing the northern ireland stuff in a year because yeah. that's where the real <laughs> that's where the real social science is and after you know we've been doing it now for a well, while, like six seven years, and and that new ERC grant gives us another five years of work on lone actors. What we pitched was to build a data set of lone actor behaviors during their kind of developmental years, radicalization, whether they were involved in networks, they conducted the attack by themselves, but you know was any part of their radicalization or attack planning involved in other people, and so on. Um, so, and it got funded and then we're kind of faced with the question of, okay, now we've got to build this code book of questions. Yeah. What are we going to ask? And, you know, the, the, the volume of stuff that had been done on Lone Wolves up until that point was kind of quite, you know, case study driven and of varying quality, but often would make these big generalizations. So they had picked out behaviors that they thought were interesting. So we said, right, let's ask those questions. And one of the people that we kind of consulted with around the code book was Robert Fine, yeah. um, whose work I was unaware of and that particular paper, um, which was published in what, like, ninety yeah. nine. I I had never seen it before and, and we were kind of it was you know, sent to us. And it was just, just this extraordinary study about kind of the behaviours, um, that occur, the sort of antecedent behaviors to people that threaten or make, you know, hostile approaches to public figures, Mm -hmm. US presidents and congressmen and stuff like that. Um, And they sort of shared their kind of, the questions that they'd asked, and we just kind of saw this as being hugely applicable to our lone actors, because essentially they're the same types of people, Mm -hmm. it's just that who they're aggrieved with is slightly different. So we kind of pulled in some of the questions from that study, but the way it was written, the kind of approach the sort of prevention aspect it was just it opened our eyes to this whole other literature that was parallel to terrorism studies but hadn't I never really had seen it cited within there maybe Randy Borham had cited it a few times because he ended up working with Robert Fine in the years afterwards but it was not, not something that I ever picked up and then there's this whole and then that paper provided a gateway when you look at who has cited that paper to a whole other world of people that, like public figure threat research, which is really applicable to lone actors, and and to the study of terrorism and terrorist behaviour, where we're finding these dozens of other papers. So it kind of made me think, you know, like when I was a PhD student, often you'd hear this kind of we need to learn from analogous fields, and you hear that all the time, yep. right? But typically, the analogous fields are or at least when we were PhD students, social movements, yep. religious cults, um. Didn't really hear crime until the last few years. Mm. But then there was this other thing that was going on that was a really thriving field of research. So it kind of made me realise how much siloed thinking goes on here, you know. And even within that literature, their literature, they never really referred back to the terrorism studies literature as well. You see a lot more of that kind of cross-pollination going on now. There's a really good journal um, published by APA called the Journal of Threat Assessment and Management, which has regular kind of terrorism-related publications. So now they're, they're, they're closer fields together. But that paper was the entrance point for how we crafted our questions around the lone actors. Mm. And that lone actor study, like the the findings kind of just took off mm-hmm. as soon as it sort of came out. in Journal of Forensic Science has been a lot of interest. And again, it's one of those papers that Think it almost threw up more questions than answers. So we went into it thinking, right, in a year we'll have all the answers. Yeah. And that kind of flagship paper, that bombing alone paper, almost throws up more questions in the discussion and conclusion, which each of which have formed their own research projects or PhD. So like we make it like a passing reference to mental health and how how big the sample is, you know, mental health problems. We just sort of left it there. And then that's where Emily Corner came in. She heard me say this in a lecture one day and then just kind of took the ball and ran with Mm -hmm. it and then just created this whole other Mm -hmm. bit of research. So She was telling the story on another
0: podcast how she went up and challenged you about that. And you said, well... Yeah, that's a good question. Try and go and, and solve it. Then. Yeah. So, yeah, because she put that as one of her influential pieces. I think I think you probably made her made her put that as her influential piece. I did, piece. Uh, yeah, yeah. Her uh, August wages were on the line. There, yeah. <laughs> and what was it? Like, what specifically from this fine paper, you talk about the generalizations there. Were there any, like, things that he had brought up there that stick in your mind as saying, if it wasn't for that paper, we would never have
1: had this in the code books? Yeah, so... um Definitely. So, one of the big findings that comes out of his paper is the degree to which other people knew something in the buildup. So, not only sort of direct threats like letters or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. sent to um, the target of interest, but also sort of telling friends, family members very specific details of what they'd intended to do. And that's something that we found in 60% of our cases and it's probably had the most interest from sort of practitioner audiences Um because i think going into it the thinking was real terrorists wouldn't tell people that they'd be far more operationally secure and you know like it's very evident today it's, it's kind of out and open source like the number of individuals that intelligence services are concerned about
0: mm-hmm.
1: I presume maybe previously that wouldn't have been something of interest, you know, if they're telling people, well, that's probably low risk, because if he was really intent, he'd be keeping it to himself, Mm -hmm. you know. But I think it's kind of helped change a little bit of thinking around Mm -hmm. some of these individuals, maybe. But it's something that we would never have coded for or even looked at, never. And it's something that has been sort of hugely influential and sort of created the most questions in the aftermath. And it was that paper Mm -hmm. that started it. And this is this is
0: brought in, in more depth in your book, Lone Act of Terrorist and Behavioural Analysis, um, which is one of the pieces that you've picked as one of your key pieces of research. And it's what you would be most known for for a lot of our listeners here, is that is that book. And in that when you're talking about when they're communicating pre-attack with others. What kind of things are we talking about here? Are they? Is it necessarily saying I'm going to be attacking? Is it this is my grievance? What is it? Are we talking okay,
1: about? so um, in about eighty uh, percent of the cases, the in, other individuals around their network were aware that they held a grievance, mm-hmm. so that they were like basically annoyed or pissed off about something. But in sixty percent, it was like something very specific related to what they'd planned to do about it. Okay. So, Bruce, Tom Ziamani... You know, it was a guy, East London, one night says to his girlfriend on the couch, you know, soon I'm going to do a Lee Rigby, meaning I'm going to do a copycat of the Lee Rigby attack, you know. And uh, luckily she raised an eyebrow and thought this is very concerning behaviour, Bruston, and she told the police about it. Mm. And the sort of assessment was made that this is actually a priority case and, and they kind of went around to make the arrest. When they went to make the arrest, he's in his driveway with a backpack on his back, a uh, ISIS flag, a long knife and a hammer. He was on his way to do it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of one extreme end where they're kind of absolutely saying something really, really specific. Mm-hmm. Um and, and you see other things like that, you know? Like it's not like one day I'm gonna blow something up. It's like, you know, on Tuesday, this is what my plan is. Sometimes they're telling people because they don't want to be a lone actor. Mm-hmm. They need other people to come along with them to give them that sort of psychological courage mm-hmm. or fortitude. In some cases I think it's just that they're so fixated and so like living that fixation, grievance, radicalization that it's all consuming and they end up just blurting it out. In lots of cases we find that they find they tell three, four, five people. Um so there's that so there's very different functions behind why they're doing it. But I think again, which are lone actors, they face a real dilemma before they step out the door they have to almost give up a a bit of their operational security. If you, let's say, were a radicalized lone actor and stepped out and did something violent and didn't tell people what you were annoyed about, Mm -hmm. didn't have a Facebook page or a Twitter page, then, you know, the reporting the next day is gonna be John Morrison lost his mind and just went out and acted upon his own kind of violent tendencies. Mm -hmm. There's no kind of story or hook to why it was, and that's important for them, right? Mm Because they need, let's say, ISIS to go out and celebrate them and push their identity out there. They need that. So it kind of helps set the scene for why they're doing it. Like like in the aftermath of the um, Westminster attack, there was questions in the days after. Well, you know, he didn't post a message, he didn't leave a video. Was he actually doing this because he was radicalised? I mean, it obviously came out afterwards. He'd been on the periphery previously. But there was that sort of question hanging over the air of like what actually was this um, and that was because he had maintained a level of operational security and it sort of hidden some of his intent there's, there's a brilliant case the name eludes me right now um, that all these kind of right wing ideologues speak about as the like the perfect lone wolf and he was a guy who conducted three shootings one on a senator one on a pornographer and one on somebody else Police, law enforcement hadn't connected these as being done by the single individual with a single narrative they were spaced years apart it was sort of messageless they looked like just random acts of shootings like an act of violence without a message behind it can't be terrorism right so it just becomes a piece of messageless violence so some of these lone actors end up seeding little bits of their operational security because they need that they need Mm -hmm. that identity afterwards Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of where all that we call that leakage right so where They're kind of telling people specifically what their plans are, and what opportunities does this leakage uh, give those who are looking to
0: counter the lone actor threat? So,
1: I mean, it's it's a potential lead, Mm -hmm. right? So, sort of let's go back to that Bruce Tomciamani case. I mean, if he doesn't say that to the girlfriend, he he goes ahead with it. You know, he's he's in the driveway, or if she sits on it for another few days and thinks. I'm not going to report that. He, you know, last week he said he was going to play for United. He's always coming out with these kind of crazy yeah. statements. Or if it lands on the desk of an intel analyst and they think, well, real terrorists don't tell people, so it, it's it's a, it's it's a way of detecting people potentially. Yeah. So there's ways of sort of trying to communicate to communities that you know, here's who. If you have concerns, here's who you and um, talk to. But again, that sort of throws up more problems in that. It's already picking out a needle in a haystack. There's lots and lots of people looking very, very aggrieved. Very, very few low base rates stepping Mm -hmm. out to do violence. Maybe if you're putting those messages out into the community, you might just be throwing more hay at the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Where there's more and more reporting. So it's a very fine line to try and uh, walk to to get the sort of right and... um, Let's say rich piece of intelligence that you can actually act upon. So I mean that that's really where it comes in is in that sort of detection type space or sort of lead generation. I think you know.
0: Let's take a step back here for for a minute with this with this project and in the 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 book Lone Actor Terrorist Behavior Analysis, you were talking about a data set of one hundred eleven actors here. Yep. Um. Now it's obviously expanded since then. Um. But what kind of data where is this data coming from what is this data um and say linking it up to that that uh, that issue of of leakage how were you verifying that this was this was accurate
1: yeah so um the initial project was done at penn state yeah. we had this internship program uh, that particular project had 24 penn state undergrads who gave 10 hours a week um basically for free unpaid um, to sort of sift through any open source piece of information we could find on a particular individual mm-hmm. so you could be talking about court records the indictments particularly for the US cases um, uh, sort of newspaper reporting of what's happening in the trial and um, a lot of these loan actors leave behind you know manifestos and sort of diaries and all that kind of like written exposition about why they did it and how they got there and things like that each individual was coded three times. So three interns looked at the same piece of information. Then it was sort of collated and kind of we looked for kind of reliability within that, see if they're kind of coding it in the same way. If there was a dispute, it would be me or one of the PhD students, Paige Deckert, who would sort of uh, resolve which was the right way to go with it. So we had this kind of very professional system in place for sifting through really large voluminous amount of of qualitative information and then turning it into quantitative data Mm -hmm. um since then we've basically updated it more or less every 15 to 18 months with new smaller teams within ucl Mm -hmm. um so that's kind of where we've been going with the project so i mean it's it's not easy enough like it's like it's a huge amount of work and you know fair play to those American students that were willing to do it I don't think we could start that from scratch here in the UK definitely couldn't do it in Ireland no like I mean you know the dedication that those people put into that for us mm-hmm. was unbelievable there's a big kind of culture of that particularly at Penn State because that was a university that a lot of people went to then go and work in DC in the beltway it was kind of known for that so like a lot of them were looking for that kind of hands-on experience of mm-hmm. Dealing with data and working on a national security related project that had a really high level of importance. So yeah they really kind of bought into it. we really heavily radicalized them sustained their radicalization over the course of a year and then wrote them brilliant um, letters and reference and stuff yeah. like that and many of them are now doing really well in dc and have really really interesting jobs you know still see a lot of them on linkedin and, and things like that so they'd
0: be like writing a letter of reference for you then yeah hopefully or, tr-
1: or research grants for me <laughs> you know, even better
0: um, besides this this key finding about leakage what do you think is the if you were saying to to someone what your other key findings from this? What would be another of the key highlights? Like, is it anything to do with ideology? Like, are we looking just at, say, or Al Qaeda inspired, or were you we finding right wing there, or what else was? Yeah. There?
1: So again, it's it's one of those things. Like, I mean, Emily probably spoke about the mental health stuff. Yes. That that's one thing that you know, she created that whole thing. Like, she brought that to the next level. Mm. You know, just with a little bit of supervision. Um. So that was the other. You know, big win for that project was Emily then taking the data, asking new questions that we never thought about in the first place and sort of bringing it to another level there. Um, We're doing a lot of stuff now through the Voxball project related to online. Mm -hmm. Um, Particularly, we, um, you know, kind of think that this online radicalization thing is a bit of a misnomer. When we find our lone actors interacting with other people online, there's a high correlation between those. Individuals that also interact offline. Yeah. So they're kind of compartmentalizing what they're doing. So maybe me and you are online chatting about whatever, mm-hmm. how this to make podcast. better bombs, and <laughs> whatever. And then I'm chatting with other radicalized individuals face to face talking about the ideology or talking about sort of what's a legitimate target and stuff yeah. like that. So I think we're kind of blowing a few of the myths out of the water with the, the sort of empirical approach. Again, we find very different sort of demographic and behavioral differences between our jihadis and the right wing. So again, going to that sort of more disaggregated type of approach. Um, And kind of now, after the book, we've done a lot of work on sequencing. So trying to come up with these kind of quantitative methods for understanding what that pathway looks like Mm -hmm. and how that can feed into sort of risk assessment and management of these individuals. I think it's had a big kind of practical impact. We have a paper under review right now uh, where we've had access to closed source data mm-hmm. um, and where we've kind of replicated most of the findings. So we've looked at 49 cases using sort of police intelligence files, interviews, replicated most of the findings and found some new stuff that was just, you couldn't find in open sources. Mm-hmm. So about, you know, like the locations in which they were building their bombs or the sort of their safe space that they were using and some other kind of tripwires. So it's kind of again it's been one of those kind of gateway projects that just led into other opportunities and then we've kind of become known as that like our team has kind of become as like lone actor and data type people so what we're finding now is people are approaching us with their data and saying you know play away with it so like the fixated threat assessment center in in london we're doing a lot of work with them again they're people that manage the risk made to the royal family and public Mm. figures and Emily was in there, you know, um, getting their data into a you know, digestible format for us to do research on. So that's where we're you know, plugging away a lot of analyses right now and finding some interesting stuff. So it's all just sort of, we're only really getting started. And you can see when, when we were
0: talking, first of all, about how you became involved, uh, you're talking about how you're interested in terrorist behavior rather than, uh, rather than the ideology and so on. And you can see this then feeding in on some of the issues that you were talking about there, feeding into the next piece that you've, uh, you've highlighted um, as, as some of your key research. It's a, it's a document titled Across the Universe, a Comparative Analysis of Violent Behavior and Radicalization Across Three Offender Types. With implications for criminal justice training and education, you're going to have yeah, to make a, it's short. a real
1: catchy title. Yeah, now. yeah,
0: it really, uh, really sings all right. Now, but <laughs> first of all, what was what were the three offender types, and why were why and how were you comparing these?
1: Okay, so um, we by the time this National Institute of Justice call for research projects came out, we'd finished our lone actor project. Within that data collection, we'd looked at, um what we called lone actors so individuals that conducted violence by themselves yeah. absent of any kind of command and control function we also had a small number of individuals who that we labeled as solo terrorists mm. so individuals that conducted violence but at some point had been directed by a terrorist group but did it by themselves yeah. so like the um, jihadi jockstrap guy the guy that tried to blow up the plane in December 2009 who mm. had been given the bomb by the group but most of the decisions he made from there were his own. So we had that information on, on those types of guys. And then for this particular project, the third type was what we call mass murderers. So individuals who killed four more people in a public place um, within a 24-hour period that wasn't organized crime related. So again, there's sort of these loners that are aggrieved about something, doing the types of violence that lone active terrorists do but just for a different type of grievance right mm-hmm. so we we were interested in seeing whether the motivation political religious impacted upon behavior compared to these really kind of personally idiosyncratic individuals that we thought were quite idiosyncratic mm-hmm. uh, when we started doing it um so we did we basically did an analysis of you know is there a difference in their kind of trajectory into violence mm-hmm. So essentially, these kind of mass murderer types, they go through their own violent radicalization. We just don't call it radicalization because it doesn't usually have a political, social element. A lot of times it actually does, but it's just quite idiosyncratic to them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we found basically very, very few differences in terms of who they were, in terms of demographics. Found very found di- very few differences in terms of what they did in the build up, what their radicalization looked like, what their attack planning looked like, we could find very, very little. And we compared it against our hundred and eighty five variables. So it's sort of it's helping us kind of reformulate what we think about these individuals. So on the one hand, I started earlier on talking about the need for disaggregation. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes when we do disaggregate we're making the wrong disaggregations. Okay. So rather than sort of splitting these lone actors and mass murderers as two very distinct types, actually behaviorally, they're really, really similar. So we're, at least I can't speak for my co-authors, but I'm starting to think about these as kind of just grievance-fueled violence mm-hmm. and that the trajectories look very, very similar. The only real difference we found was that, statistically speaking, the lone actor terrorists were more likely to leak their intent. Mm-hmm. And they were more likely to need to do hostile reconnaissance because your mass murderers were doing it in their places of work, places of education that they knew from their routine activities. Mm. But apart from that, they're like vulnerabilities, stressors, the length of time it took, the kind of um, other sort of tripwires. Really, really similar dudes. Really, really similar types of individuals. Um, So that's kind of what helped reached the divide there between that sort of threat management threat assessment literature and our more sort of formal kind of terrorism studies literature so we had to sort of dip into that world a lot and we're kind of finding similar things and from that study and the other lone actor studies I've ended up doing conferences at in like clinical settings and you know studies on like stalkers violent stalkers who again sort of build a grievance fixate mull over it for a long time have that violent ideation and then step over line and do the violence. And there's a huge amount of parallels between the types of individuals they're studying there and what we're studying here. And again, some of our some of the guys kind of leap between what they're fixated with and their motivations. So many of the guys in our lone actor data set, their final act of violence was, you know, politically inspired. But previously they had had fixations and harassing type behaviours with ex-girlfriends, wives, stuff like that. So it's just that by the time they did their public act of violence, they were inspired by something different. So that's really where that kind of paper comes in, is to sort of say, well, actually, there's lots of similarities between these. Mm -hmm. Randy Borham speaks about it in a kind of very theoretical sense that, you know, rather than asking about that sort of yes-no dichotomies, that everything is basically on different dimensions or spectrums. And he says, you know, you can plot people between that are just heavily personally Motivated and those that are kind of purely politically motivated, those that get no direction, those that get some direction, those that are inspired, those with no inspiration. So we ended up kind of plotting that out and kind of and uh, visualizing what that looked like. And you know, often you find these guys; they're labelled as lone actor terrorists, but the people that they're victimizing are just sets of people that personally annoyed them. Like it doesn't really fit with their ideology. It's like Anders Breivik was anti-immigration; didn't go after one immigrant. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, then you have these guys that are depicted as mass murderers with no political stuff, but they've written a manifesto. It's just a really, it hasn't gone viral. Mm-hmm. So it's not treated as something that's much bigger with a wider milieu. So they're kind of very similar types of individuals. So it was trying to kind of unpick why, why that is. And, and there's, I think, 12 different case studies written up there about kind of what that trajectory looks like and um, we've only published one paper on that so far and and you know there'll be more coming out soon but that was a really really cool project mm-hmm. and uh you know we might return back to that data at some point and try and do like a kind of follow-up book you know with the more heavy case studies because the thing that i like about it from a research perspective is these kind of black swan type events they do throw up a lot of open source information mm-hmm. you know previously we'd done work on you know I mean, you've done work on, I've done stuff on the provos, you've done stuff on the dissidents okay. where you're building these data sets. You can't get a lot about behavior when there's lots and lots and lots of these cases, right? Yeah. But you can get um, lots of information when there are fairly black swan events. Mm. And it's kind of going that way with the lone actor of terrorists now. You know, there's so many of these cases that it's really, really difficult to get the same level of data. Yeah. I think so. I think this next data collection that we go through is going to be a tough one to kind of get less missing data because they're just more common, so it's just not as reported about as much. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah,
0: like, and I suppose I, when you're comparing it to to our work on Irish republicanism, and we, before pressing record on this, we were talking about the lead up to the Birmingham bomb in England and there were so many bombs going on uh, across England at that time in the lead up to it that it's hard, it was hard, to, it would have been hard to get the as in-depth data about the, the individuals involved in relation to those bombs, as you would be able to get to these black swan events, as you were talking about there. When we're talking about this, one of the case studies that you focus on here is Timothy McVeigh, and you treat him as a lone actor terrorist, whereas some people will will say, well, actually he wasn't quite a lone actor terrorist. That comes back into your definition of a lone actor. Why would someone like McVeigh have been considered a
1: lone actor? So our definition was, did they conduct the act of violence on the day Mm -hmm. by themselves? Mm -hmm. That's the only... So when you're faced with building these big data sets, you can come up with as many questions as you want. Mm -hmm. But what you've got to make sure about is that the inclusion criteria is something that you'll be able to sort of identify very, very quickly. Because otherwise, you might be spending a lot of your time coding up all the sorts of information and then having to throw it out, which is perfectly fine. But that original project was a one year project. It was nine to ten months of data collection and very, very little time to do the analysis. So we had to have something that was fairly kind of concrete. Mm. Um, So that's kind of one kind of practical reason why we did it that way. Definitions really, really hugely differ. um, Where some people say, you know, they had to have done all their radicalization by themselves. I think really, if you did it by that definition, you're not going to have any cases, you know, you're going to have like a handful of cases. Um, so that's kind of what we were interested in, because, again, we were thinking about it from a practical standpoint, operationally. You have information that one individual conducted the attack on a given day. How many of them were part of a wider command and control group? How many of them did it by themselves? How many of them had sort of radicalized within the wider milieu, but did it by themselves? So that's kind of why we went about it that way, was that, like, working it backwards, can we depict at what stages are they alone? So we know for sure they conducted the attack by themselves. So they're in, and then let's work backwards. By no means are we saying that these guys do it all by themselves, Mm. because really, it's a very sort of social process, particularly that radicalization and and. And kind of the adoption of the ideology and reaching out to other people for advice and help and things like that that's very very common so um partly it's a definitional reason really that's mm. why he's in there
0: yeah, and I suppose it, it you can you can see it when you're referring in your in your book and in other pieces to
1: to loner dyads and yeah I mean like you know I mean, we wanted to do a kind of larger end type thing, so it was a slightly more inclusive definition. Mm. than other studies have. But then others are kind of really, really wide and you know include triads and all this other sort of stuff, yeah. which you know, you don't. is a different dynamic. Yeah.
0: yeah, and that's where you have to operationalize it straight away and say, exactly. this is exactly. Exactly,
1: that's, I mean, this is something that I see in lots of kind of academic conferences is people kind of complaining about your definition. Yeah. Well, it's like, well, that's the definition. That's the inclusion criteria. That's how we did it. Mm-hmm. If you want to replicate it with your own definition, by all means go ahead and the way we kind of build a data set it's all basically dummy coded mm-hmm. so we can change our definition going forwards and drop out individuals that don't meet certain criteria because it's all coded as ones and zeros so we can do that very easily and we have had questions from different researchers or you know uh, maybe law enforcement saying well if you change it this way how does that impact upon the results and we can you know do that almost immediately because of the way we coded it mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, that's kind of, that's why he's included with us. Yeah, and, you know, you often do see him yeah. included in, like, other books on lone wolf terrorism. Yeah. yeah. So we've
0: heard about the the key findings from it. We've heard about the, the leakage and, and uh, issues like this that a few years ago would have been a surprise to people. If you were to write a purely policy paper and say, these are the key things to do, uh, this is how to uh, to help protect against lone actor events or to pre- prevent against lone actor terrorism. What would be what would be your key take home messages? So
1: it's. Um, I mean, it's a really difficult question, yeah. John. You know, yeah. <laughs> I told you this would be tougher than your rival. So it's like, um, I mean, we look at this in a sort of phased process, right? So. There's no sort of single intervention that's going to sort of be universally applicable across yeah. all these different cases, right? So you need your different kind of intervention points from at that moment when they are vulnerable to radicalization, when they're going through a radicalization process, when they're attack planning, and then when they're sort of on the day doing the attack itself, right? So it really depends upon... I don't think asking, like, how do you prevent lone actor yeah. is specific enough, right? Like, like the literature on crime prevention shows you have to be really a, scan the problem what's the exact problem that you, you think you have and then try and do your analysis and your response based on that like six years ago when we were talking about this research we was all you know we were talking about you know make it harder to get your hands on bomb making material make it harder to get your hands on firearms then the sort of tactical displacement then is will they move towards knives and vehicle attacks and that throws up its own sort of sets of problems there right i think in terms of managing people in that sort of pre-crime space because of the heavy levels of previous criminality because of the heavy levels of mental health problems and because of the heavy levels of leakage it really necessitates this kind of multi-agency mappa type approach whereby your partner agencies need to know what policing and intelligence are interested in you're not sort of saying to them you are now an agent of the state you're just kind of helping safeguard community safeguard and safeguard that individual from taking some really bad life decisions. So it's about sort of that multi-agency working much further downstream because they're likely to be ones to be noticing things and they're also probably the best place people to manage the individual. Not in terms of let's counter your ideology or your narrative, but actually let's try and help you Mm -hmm. and sort of, you know, psychologically build you to be a better, more resilient better kind of citizen mm-hmm. and kind of don't even treat it like a ct problem just treat it as a, like an ordinary public health type issue Um, i think there's i think this, i think you know being in the uk the home office pu- pushes a lot of this kind of countering ideology counter narrative stuff i'm quite skeptical about that and how well it could work on you know let's kind of see what the evaluations look like but i think with those types of individuals really it's about going a step further away from the boom and actually dealing with them as individuals and try and, and, um, you know, do your social work interventions, do your psychological interventions and that type of stuff. And don't worry about the grievance. Worry about the things that led the grievance to take hold. Mm -hmm. And then maybe, because maybe it's those things, those kind of root causes, which are increasing the risk. But if we can deal with them, the the risk goes away. Unfortunately, we have a great level of, Uh, knowledge in that space because that's what that's what social workers do that's what psychologists do you know they've been doing it for a long long time it's just that when those people were in that space and highly vulnerable they were catching on to different risky behaviours you know other than sort of political violence terrorism Um, so yeah there's, there's a lot
0: and I suppose that's where the, the necessity of having interdisciplinary research uh, comes in as well. That it shouldn't be just siloed. And exactly, need yeah. need to be speaking to each other. I
1: mean, I'm, I've learned so much in the last year going to like clinical psych and psychiatry conferences. Like I never would have thought I'd be at a psychiatry conference when I was doing my PhD. I like never would have yeah. thought that they'd be doing stuff that's of interest to us. Right. Or, Whatever, but now I'm learning an absolute ton from that.
0: Oh, that's great! And as as with all of our interviewees, if you want to read any of the the pieces that we've been discussing about here, there are links on the the Talking Terror website that you can get through get to uh, by going to uelacuk teorc And similar to the early days of your career, you're starting off. Uh, with one uh, type of terrorism but it's brought back uh, to irish republicanism then so the final piece that we're going to talk about is a piece that you did with um with multiple uh, research colleagues uh, and it's it's from that uh, research you did in Penn State at ICST. It's called "Lethal Connections: The Determinants of Network Connections in the Provisional I- Irish Republican Army, 1970 to 1998." Another catchy title yeah. there. Well, "Lethal Connections" is good. Yeah, yeah.
1: Took me a day and a half to come up with that. <laughs> I think I remember. I that missed, I, yeah, I missed those days where you had time to come up with pithy titles. Yeah. Now it's all titles with question marks at the end. Exactly.
0: So, what's this? What's this paper about? And what, what did you find?
1: Um, so what. The big project, which this is one of the papers, was interested in um, IED networks. So what do, uh, you know, what are the different forms and functions within an IED network look like? Um, so again, we went on a big sort of data collection crawl. This was prior to the loan actors where we had um, students go through kind of re- um, reports of um, convictions related to provisional IRA activity, code all the demographic features, coded for um, what specifically they were being convicted of? Mm-hmm. So, was it, did they plant a bomb? Was a bomb maker? Was it you know a shooting or whatever? So, we coded the roles that they were convicted for, and who was connected to who. Mm-hmm. So, were they convicted together? Did they go on the same operation together? Were they in the same safe house? And what are the years in which that occurred? So, we had this sort of cross-sectional network data, which was just ripe for all types of analyses. Mm-hmm again sort of going back like this is one of my favourite papers I mean the, the science behind it is really sophisticated yeah. it's far more sophisticated than much of the lone actor stuff but the lone actor stuff just seems to be what everybody's interested in right now and it's the sort of threat of the day and that's why people are going down that route mm-hmm. whereas I think the kind of methodology in this paper has a wider applicability to all sorts of terrorist groups mm-hmm. but because it has the provisional IRA in the title it's just Hugely not, it's just not looked at and it's barely cited, you know? Yeah. So that's why I brought it up today. Yeah. So it gets cited a lot more. <laughs> so it gets right? cited, finally. You yeah. know? But um, I had a, when we started off again, I didn't know anything about social network analysis, so it was kind of a deep dive into mm-hmm. that. And obviously, the big one at the time was Mark Sageman stuff on sort of early jihadi networks. And he sort of depicted his findings as being something really new. Mm that here we have this kind of horizontal network. All those old terrorist groups are hierarchically inclined. And this is something that we've never faced before. When you sort of start scratching away at the kind of data collection method that SageMan went through, it was kind of very different than anything that had gone before. Mm -hmm. And I think the comparison he was making was sort of apples and oranges type comparison. They just weren't the same things. Mm -hmm. So what he was collecting data on was sort of essentially informal networks so who knows who, who hangs around with who, who did things together. But he was comparing it to papers that were basically on formal networks. Yeah. So like Horgan and Max Taylor sat down and interviewed provisional IRA guys and said, well, what functionally, what does that network look like? They said, well, there's a chief of staff, there's an army council. Under that, you've got your brigadiers and all the way down to the active service unit. So that's formally what it's supposed to look like. But you and I know from like all the stuff on provisional IRA, like it's so heavily embedded within families and friends and all the sort of same dynamics that Sageman was talking about that really informally, day-to-day, the network isn't going to be that sort of linear hierarchical stuff because they kind of knew each other and they're all kind of marrying across different families and reading any kind of first-hand account by provisional IRA guys. You know, they're naming dozens and dozens and dozens of other provisional IRA guys at all sorts of levels of the organization just because informally... Yeah. They knew them. Yeah. Um so that was our kind of right let's collect this network data do it in a fairly similar kind of egocentric way um where you to the sagement stuff where you get known individuals at the start mm-hmm. so we got the kind of hard the core of the network cuz we you know their famous names mm-hmm. and then basically we spun it out from there look right who else were they convicted with for certain offenses and of those individuals who were they connected with and of those individuals who are they connected with and we kind of built it out that way and we basically found very similar kind of horizontal type networks that Sageman had found mm-hmm. because it's a remnant of the way through which you were collecting the data and it's a much more kind of like for like comparison and mm-hmm. um, so that was kind of one of the big things that kind of comes out of it Again, a lot of that sort of qualitative literature on the Irish Republican Army um, talks about how the network, the formal network, changed over time. Yeah. Right? So yeah. we could try and model whether that occurred because we had the cross-sectional data. Mm-hmm. And we found that actually, to a great extent, it did change in terms of the, the metrics within the network. It did change to the degree to which it was supposed to according to the qualitative accounts, mm-hmm. which then itself... Um, has implications for the wider social network literature, because there's a big debate about whether hierarchies at the top of networks, the sort of decision makers, have an ability to shape network. Mm-hmm. Um, so it had an implication for that kind of wider debate in literature in there as well, mm. or or whether do networks shape their environment or do the environment shape the network? And we kind of found well actually the higher ups had the ability to shape the environment, which then shaped the network. So I think it has that kind of implication for the wider study of terrorism and terrorist groups and networks and, and formations. which But it just isn't looked at because people think, oh, provisional IRA, nobody's interested. And actually, we we sent this out f- to a couple of other journals and that was literally the feedback from reviewers. It's like, oh, this is all really interesting, but nobody cares about the provisional IRA. It's done. You know, they kind of missed the point that, well, really, this is a demonstration of a method mm-hmm. that could be applied to today's groups, mm-hmm. if you went out and did that same data collection, it sort of busts one of the myths about the old hierarchical groups and shows, well, actually, there's a lot of sort of informal stuff going on. Uh, and it has kind of wider implications, but it, it's kind of get, I regret in some ways putting provisional IRA in the title. You know? Yeah,
0: no, I know the feeling. And I've, yeah.
1: I mean, you know, I'd say you, you feel that about that some of your stuff where you're talking about splits and you're talking, that has much wider implications beyond the dissident groups. Yeah. But once people see Northern Ireland they're like, Oh no, I'm only interested in the jihad like people get siloed not within terrorism studies, but also in very small silos within terrorism studies. Yeah. Oh completely. Like and I like I know
0: when I talk to people about about my research, they uh, I don't know this interview is meant to be about you, but this is this going to be my my moment now. Uh, but yeah, people do say, "Oh, that's irrelevant. What's the point yeah. in looking at that?" And even when you're looking at the modern day violent dissident republicans, they say, "Oh, that's irrelevant. That's gone. It's, yeah, nothing's yeah. It's happening like, now. There's still bombs yeah. going yeah. on." Whereas yeah. you've got someone like Kieran Maxwell being convicted and stuff, and if that if he was linked to ISIS,
1: oh it would my be god, like a story news. like that, where yeah. he's got access to commercial explosives, firearms in a prestige place. Where yeah. there's lots of high value targets. Multiple high value target. Like it would be You'd never hear the end of it. No. And and there'd probably be a new terrorism act legislation brought in yeah. purely off the basis of it. But because he's linked to the continuity IRA, it's just oh well sure, that's gone. Yeah, I mean it's 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 hugely frustrating. But like I mean, I know I've been guilty of it previously, yeah. you know. I mean, and this you've only got a finite amount of time to read stuff. Yeah. Um but that's one that I really feel like the lone actor stuff has produced like lots of like it's done it's done really well for me and my career but some of the stuff that we've done on Provisional IRA like the methods behind it are far better you know but they just haven't kind of taken hold in the same way because it's not the particularly the provisional stuff, it's seen as historical and, exactly. you know, it can't have any impact for today's yeah. stuff, you know?
0: And, like, you're even drawing on concepts here that you would never see in other terrorism literature, something like uh, homophily. Like, what, what was what were you talking about there in regards to that?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, the main problem with that was figuring out whether it's homophily or homophily mm-hmm. and we kind of went back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still not quite sure. Yeah. I will go back every few months. But, um... It was that kind of question of, is it a sense of birds of a feather flock together? Mm. So in lots of the wider social network analysis literature of, let's say, the social network of UEL, mm. what you find is that people that are like each other are more likely to be connected with yeah. each other in an informal setting. So probably one of the big reasons me and you got on very, very well from the outset was at Penn State was we were both Irish guys, same age, had both gone to UCD, had mm. a lot in common, knew some of the same people. Right? Yeah. Whereas if you were some sort of randomer from you know somewhere else, and so on it would have taken longer to exactly. get to that point yeah. or by then you may have found another network of people that were also kind of randomers and right? mm-hmm. um, so it's that sort of thinking that people that are very similar to others have that quicker kind of bond mm-hmm. and trust in each other so that's a kind of wider thing from social network analysis so we wanted to test whether people of the same age groups were more likely to be connected whether the kind of married guys hung out with the married guys within the IRA to see whether there was some of those kind of likeness things driving Mm co-offending we found a fairly kind of weak relationship and it sort of changed over time which again was probably to do with we can know from the qualitative literature something to do with you know just the higher ups structuring their network you know but really it was to do with the bomb makers that's what we're interested in Mm -hmm. and what we found in the network analysis was that the bomb makers typically tended to cluster in twos you know when we did our visualization and looking at the sort of demographics it kind of looks like that kind of master apprentice type relationship you know Uh, and again some of the qualitative stuff that came out of that study was that's how you need to learn to be a bomb maker you need to be looking over somebody's shoulder Mm. you know like that sort of how to the list the bomb making manual you might get lucky and be able to create bombs but if the temperature is different or if the products aren't as fresh there's a whole other know-how that you need Which is what those kind of YouTube videos are now giving individuals, because you can see what the mix should look like. Yeah, they're kind of getting that little bit more of a know-how. Um, so yeah, so that's what we we're really testing with the homophily type mm-hmm. stuff, you know. Yeah, and it's again,
0: as you've said, it's something that it's a it's a paper that doesn't really get cited, uh, and it never will. It never um, will. And, but I'd <laughs> I'd encourage everyone to read it. Like it's um it's a really really fascinating piece, and where you're you're when you're talking about homophily you're talking about geography kinship organizational affiliation occupational affiliation role cognitive process so you're looking you're looking really in depth a deep dive at the heterogeneity of these individuals within the group yeah and it's
1: we basically did what sageman did in a more sophisticated fashion but with a less trendy group yeah
0: yeah it's uh so you're not bitter about this not I'm, fair, so? I'm fairly
1: bitter about it actually yeah <laughs> uh,
0: but it's uh no hopefully hopefully we'll get a few more citations Maybe after this now one would do
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but we're like i've taken a lot more of your time than uh than than i had planned not that i didn't want to spend time so with you time. like but i'd like to finish up by it's actually drawing on something that sageman was talking about What do you feel, not in that piece, but in a more recent piece, how do you feel about the state of terrorism research? Has it stagnated? Um, Do you feel he was right in saying that?
1: I just can't believe that TPV allowed that to be published. I mean, it was one of the most uninformed, ridiculous pieces that I've ever sort of seen. Tell us what you really think. (laughs) Like, I mean... Well, it opens up by saying that the only question that's really of interest is how do you predict who's going to become an Islamist terrorist or a jihadi terrorist, whatever terminology you use. And to be fair, that's one of, you know, dozens and dozens of really important questions. So he sort of unduly narrows the field. I think the question about prediction is quite ridiculous as well. Mm -hmm. You're never going to be able to predict such a sort of low base rate thing. What you might be able to do through better social science is say, okay, you've got 3,000 people of interests. You've only got finite resources to look at 5%. What are the things that push people to the top of the list? You know, you can do stuff on management and triage, but prediction, it's kind of useless. So, so yeah, there's been a stagnation in that answer because I think people within the field know that it's a ridiculous question. Okay. So why are we even trying it in the first place? Um. So yeah. So I think he just unduly narrowed the stuff. I mean, if you look at the actual citations that he that he uses, there's very very few from the or three, four, five years prior to that paper being published. It's mainly stuff that had come out years beforehand. He he just wasn't up to scratch with what was going on in the literature at all. I don't think it was a fair assessment whatsoever. He talks about the lack of access to closed data. I mean, we've had access to closed data. Closed data is not perfect. Closed data won't even get you that sort of ability to predict. It's messy, you know? It's it's not developed for research perspective. It's not going to be sort of like this easy, glossy kind of Excel file that you can manipulate straight away for research purposes. And, and there is a lot of research that has used closed source. You know, Bart Sherman has published a few papers on closed source, and there's a number of other ones that have done it too. So I think it was just a real poor understanding of what the field is like and i mean if you're not going to society of terrorism research if you're not going to isa if you're not going to um apsa or american society for criminology and those mm. things you won't have a clue what's going on in the terrorism mm. literature and i've never seen him at any of them i've seen him be a keynote uh str but yeah. apart from that you know so he's not in a position to talk about what the literature is like he's a big name and rightfully so, because that first pe- first book was brilliant. But he's not in a position to talk about the literature. He's not teaching it. He's not, you know, mm. he's, he's not what I'd consider an active researcher. You know, if you look at that Society of Terrorism research, and I'll give you a compliment here. Like, since you held that in UEL, and you look at the quality of papers, mm. you know, from the year before you held it in UEL to when you held it in UEL, massive jump forward. Mm. Like, in terms of the sophistication, the interdisciplinarity, and then, like last year, or like the one a few weeks ago, and the one, hey, you see more and more criminologists, psychologists coming in, really rigorous methods with actual data, experimental work. It's a really exciting field to be in right now. Mm. You know, as you see stuff that Kirk Braddock's doing on communications. So, on across the board, there's these big leaps forward that just aren't characterized in what Sageman says. And in the TPV, you also published a list of responses, you know? Yeah. Again, the vast majority of them were you know, the big names in the field. They they should have reached out to sort of more early career researchers who are sort of deep in the literature because that's what you do as an early career researcher. You have to be to do write your PhD and your lit reviews and yeah. all that and you're going to more conferences. I think you kinda of got your finger on the pulse a little bit better. And I think um I think it was kind of quite insulting to junior career researchers and I think it was kind of insulting to a lot of the big names too. Like some Max Taylor who'd done some brilliant stuff on behaviour. Isn't sort of mentioned whatsoever, you know, yeah, so it was a it was a funny one, it was a funny one yeah, it's and like yeah, you talk about max Taylor, like
0: he was drawing on stuff like affordance, which hadn't been yeah, exactly before, and other issues like that that it's yeah i i can I can see exactly where you're coming from it's there's a lot more questions to ask. It goes back to well, what do we want to find out, therefore? We have to set our questions uh, clearly at the beginning as well. And we need to be able to draw from wider literature. And just
1: as a very simple marker, you know, when me and you were PhD students. The first thing you'd always hear conferences and so on or, or reviews of literature is, there's no data. There's no data. There's no data. There's no data. Yeah. And Perspectives just published a little, uh, like an appendix in their latest journal where they list something like 60 data sources for terrorism mm. individuals. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, it's thriving. Yeah. So now it's not a question... You don't get questions anymore about lack of data. What you get questions about is intercoder reliability, what were really your yeah, original yeah. sources? So, like, even the questions that you're being fielded, more sophisticated, are far more sophisticated. Yeah. That's massively, even yeah. that yeah. small 10 years that I've been engaged in. It. And you, you,
0: you mentioned Bart Sherman there a while back. And Bart has just been, over the past few weeks, tweeting out about a, a project that he was mentioned in one of our earlier podcasts about how he's looking at the research and seeing if uh, terrorism uh, research is using data. And he said, it goes against what the the known wisdom is there's a lot more data being used a lot more data being analyzed across the publications and he said he went in thinking yeah i agree that there isn't data being used uh, there aren't data being used and uh, it just it's showing up that it's it's yeah, actually it's the it's different way it is yeah. definitely driving paul on that note i'd like to thank you for today's podcast uh, it was a really interesting chat I, i'm sure our listeners really got a lot from it as as i said earlier Links to all the pieces that Paul uh, was discussing, both the pieces that influenced him as well as his own research, are available on our website. Uh, be sure to tune in next week uh, when I talk to another colleague of ours from ICST, Dr. James Piazza, um, where we'll be uh, talking about his uh, research uh, into um, into broad themes surrounding uh, terrorism and what kind of contexts... Um, you see terrorism arising. Uh, as always, check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash C and follow us on Twitter at teorcuel with the hashtag Talking Terror. Okay, chat to you then. Bye.